This is the 43rd episode of Stockholm Legacy Report, a podcast about the paper legacy. My name is Victor Bernhardt. With me, as always, are my excellent co-hosts Robin Svensson and Christopher Wikström. To you, the listener, we would like to say thank you for tuning in and welcome. Hello, hi, how do you do? Hello, friends. I hope you're doing well. Stockholm Legacy Report can be found every week on a Top Deck tab. In this week's episode, we will give a shorter paper play report as only one of us had time to play last week. After that, we will freestyle wildly and discuss what deck we would try out if card availability wasn't an issue at all. This is not to say that we will launch into a discussion about the reserve list, Covid, Bitcoin, the global economy, late stage capitalism or any other related issue. Others have done that to an exhaustive extent. We are just going to dream. But uh, before we invoke Sandman, Christopher, you shuffled cardboard last week at least. How did that go? So yeah, I was the only member who played Paper Legacy, I think, this week. And I'm doing some some GoffCon prep right now. So last week I tried the 60 card your uh, 60 card Aleron list, and this week I decided to sleeve up my exact almost exact 80 from the nationals and bring that to the local game store because I was I was really happy about how that deck functioned uh, when we were in Gothenburg and. Uh, no, wait, it was in Borås. But since we're going back to the West Coast, I think it's good to, you know, just... Uh, I, w- I was really excited to see, like, was the Yorian list uh, that I played at at Nationals uh, still good? Because one of the bigger benefits of the deck was that it was pretty good against Ragavan because they had so many bad hits. So I tried it, and it was pretty identical to the to the list that I talked about during our Nationals episode. Um, so if you're interested, I think we have that in the backlog. So my first round opponent was against Bant Control. And this is one of the matchups that I really enjoy playing with this deck. Because Bant is one of those decks that don't too often run the Breacher combo in it. Which is quite scary with this deck because you're drawing a lot of cards. But this was a Bant Breacher deck. But... Uh, yeah, we played a, a game one, and I'm playing like I'm a Bant control deck as well. So it's pretty much a Bant mirror, and our game one is 40 minutes long. This deck is really good at just pumping pumping stuff out onto the battlefield. So when my opponent <laughs> finally went for the like hull breacher uh, days undoing, I gladly just swords to plowshared the hull breacher because I had a Teferi in play and just drew seven cards, which felt great. But the game one was still like f- 40 minutes long because I couldn't find Aloran, but I was still winning like on board, like a fair game. And then after our game, we started sideboarding. No, we were <laughs> we were reaching for the sideboard. And my opponent just went, nah, you you get this one. Like I don't I don't have it in me <laughs> to even try killing you in in five minutes to get a draw. So uh, that that yeah. was like uh, I did the demoralization uh, game one against my a re- reasonable reaction from this opponent. I would say like after losing a forty minute first game against a sort of not mirror but still, I would probably also unless I was in for some you know high stakes winning in whatever i was just like nah i'm just gonna go grab something to eat probably (laughs) this is also why i don't play band because jesus yeah like especially if you're 
I think especially since uh, like his best clock is either Hullbreacher or Uro. And against the Swords to Plowshares, Prismatic Ending combo deck, like a game two is probably not going to either finish or you're, you're going to lose game two also. Because one of the players can win on four mana. So uh, yeah, uh, round one was a... <laughs> was a sweep <laughs> a good game <laughs> then i played against one of the matchups that i really enjoy with this deck and it was lance and i was playing against the red green exploration build with the valakut explorations and i think it's a pretty pretty nice matchup i have so many basics so the normal denial plan is uh, it's not really great which which i really which i really find you know, one of the strongest things with playing Aloran or Food Chain against against uh, a deck like Lance. However, the addition of Buseju is making the matchup a bit scarier because normally when you got there, you were pretty much like, I have to watch out for a force of vigor. So a lot of times you just made Aloran and passed the turn. And then if they untapped, you knew that they either had to pay mana for it or that they didn't have it. But now they have this really low threshold of destroying Aloran, which is just like an uncounterable menace in Beseju. But, uh, you know, game one was uh, uh, like <laughs> the one of those games where you just play a turn one bird that got punishing fired, turn two living wish for a Serac, a turn three... Teferi in turn four Aluren. <laughs> so it was like one of those games where like the it's it's quite hard to do anything if if your lands. If he would have had the Beseju, you know, it could have been different. I think I had two creatures that could have drawn cards, but it's still like very unlikely to find Harpy or you know, a recruiter or something like that. But it can happen. Isn't it still a little bit uh, tricky with the Beseju because you can always like win with the channel effect on the stack if you have the combo in hand yeah yeah yeah. and that's why it becomes this weird waiting game almost and you don't you don't really want to do that either like a lot of times they can't really do all that much but uh, just going for it with an alert is definitely less certain to do something super powerful if they're sitting on two man up but yeah like game two we got into this super weird position where my opponent actually had three Valakut Explorations in play, but no normal Exploration. So uh, when we were just sitting there, like, I was just digging, you know, playing Abundant Groves into Living Wishes to, you know, get get Caracas just for a, a land drop and stuff like that. It, it eventually came down to, you know, me just playing Aluren, he besaged it. I had a second one in hand, but I got to value alert a bit out of that. And then the next turn, I just went for a second one, and I killed him. So uh, I think I think that matchup is is really good. And I had to destroy, like I had to counter one sphere and prismatic ending a second one. The Valakut Explorations did find some really annoying cards, but I still managed to power through it. That felt really good. Yeah, it feels like the spheres are the like the most efficient way to combat Aluren. Yeah, but for sure. it's still pretty hard. I mean, either you're on bug and just decay them, <laughs> or you're on prismatic ending and just ending them. Yeah, so. <laughs> like or worse, you're on ending and you get to just 
excess excess do it without tax yeah like yeah destroys it without tax which is nasty so the that feels pretty good then i'm up against uh you know one of our favorite people collectively favorite people the hope and i'm playing against andreas the hope in round three and he's on green white depths and as i mentioned on the nationals uh, episode this is also one of those matchups where I think is pretty good because they really have to go fast. And this is one of the builds that is not built to go as fast if you're a Depths player. You're playing all of these really good cards like uh, Knight of the Reliquary and, uh, you know, some of the best removal like Swords to Plowshares and stuff like that. But none of those cards are particularly good against Alurn. I mean, night can be good. It's an insanely quick clock. But long story short, the match, like game one, I think it was a quite fast game. I think I comboed quite quickly. And uh, the game two was kind of interesting. He he managed to assemble the combo. And I managed to put Aluren into play. Uh, but he was sitting with a lot of mana up. And I was thinking, like, if he has Buseju... I don't really want to go for the combo because it, it gets super awkward. So end of turn, he decided to make Merit, which only left him with one land open. So before he could get an, a legendary creature into play in Merit, I decided to go for the combo, which killed him. And uh, he didn't have Baseju. Uh, he showed me afterwards. And I, don't, I think he said like the stock lists of uh, Green White Depths don't play it either, which was right. something I didn't know. So I was uh, playing around my own mind, I think. I mean, we've been before before Neon Dynasty became legal and started seeing appearances in in decks. Of course, Boseji was on everyone's uh, lips or in everyone's microphones, uh, I should say. And afterwards, we haven't really seen a lot of talk about it because the community seems to be discussing other things, such as the win percentage of Blue Red Delver. But I would say that the card in many respects just sort of seems to hold up to at least most of the hype like because when it's good it's just really really good and when it's bad sort of it's still a land right so yeah. I'm, I'm thinking it's probably gonna go as some people then predicted uh, as with ursa saga it's just gonna eventually show up in more and more lists because why not include it like what you're gonna lose probably not too much right yeah I think it it was not. I mean, it was quite hyped before it it was legal, and after that, I think it was a little bit like uh, overshadowed almost by Ottawara, which was much better than what people thought it would be. And Bosejo is maybe a little bit worse than people thought it would be, but I still think it's really, really good because the drawback of of giving a land is a little bit of a bigger drawback uh, than I think was anticipated. But when it is good, when it kills an enchantment or an artifact that is preventing you from winning, it's so freaking good to have that effect in your mana base. And when you don't need it, you just play it as a forest. So I really like its position. And I think also, like, if, if you look in hindsight, when decks that are playing green have access to Endurance and Buseju, you suddenly, I think, are able to solve a lot of problems that you were not able to solve before as efficiently and me playing decks that are susceptible to this <laughs> increase in in in, uh, in response to, to what i'm doing i'm feeling it because green decks usually would be like well that's not going to be a huge 
problem in and of itself. And now it suddenly kind of is. People thought Basedi was going to be extremely good. And then both Kappa Cannoneer and Ottawara entered the format at the same time. And Ottawara overperformed and Kappa Cannoneer performed pretty much as well as the people who were really high on it uh, were expecting. But I w- what I will say about Busejo is it's, in my opinion, around as good as people predicted because it's doing all of the things, all of the valuable things that people were talking about. And for me, going going from having very smooth, <laughs> like uh, you're just sitting in your in your small boat, going slowly downstream in in the jungle of lands uh, as Aloran player, you're just calling all of the birds that are coming, and you know you're having a great time. Like now, suddenly they do have Busejo because it's it's not as it's it's a lot scarier than Force of Vigor if you're an Aloran player. Because force the bigger you can counter, and in a day in a deck like Aluren, that's a, a very nice thing to be able to do because you draw so many cards. But when this gets on the stack and it's targeting Aluren, if you have your harpy on the stack or are in a really weird position, your combo turn is is finished. You haven't lost the game, but your previously free game. Uh, like is is over so i think uh, it's it's around as good as people anticipated and i think that's that's quite cool so the last round uh, my opponent had to leave a bit earlier so he asked if uh, if we could split and i was like sure but for glory we're gonna play a best of one i think um because our lgs also like the the organizers keep track of, you know, the 4-0 lists and stuff like that. So I was like, we should play a game one to see who gets the 4-0. And uh, he was on Jeskai Breacher, <laughs> which is a scary deck to play against. Once again, I'm playing against the whole Breacher deck uh, with a learn. But uh, I managed to resolve my turn free Teferi. I managed to force his. And I had a, I, I, I literally fetched a Yorion just to have another force up. And on... My opponent's turn, uh, turn four, they played a Jace, which I could have forced a negation, but I was like, yeah, I have Aloran and Recruiter in hand. This game is over. So I just took the turn and, and killed him. So that was a, a pretty pretty nice sweep. I think the deck is still really good. Like It has a lot of card advantage. The I made some small changes because fast combo was my uh, doom pretty much at uh, or my biggest fear going into Burros and the Nationals. So I actually I actually swapped two Force of Negations for two Mind Break Trap in the sideboard because I want to have a bit extra leeway, but I think I might even go go heavier on anti-combo uh, because my I feel like my game one is so strong against everything but combo and, and maybe Delbor. You heard it here. What a surprise. So yeah, uh, 4-0. So that was my my play report. I thought, I thought the deck was really great. Like I, I really like both 60 and 80 card alert right now. They both are doing quite strong things. And the Urian list, like I mentioned, has a lot of mana sync. And it also has a lot of get out of jail free cards in Swords to Plowshares and Prismatic Ending. But at times, you know, it can be a bit clunkier. But in the metagame we're seeing right now, 
besides Delver and the really fast combos, I feel like a Yorion build is built to combat that. And I, I think that's why we're still seeing Yorion lists like these Bant four-color Yorion value piles. It's pretty much this deck, but instead of a combo finish, you have a bit more lean uh, fair plan, which is not bad either. It sounds like from your play report that Teferi was quite the card as well. Teferi is always going to be great. Like in in Aloran, in Food Chain, in Infect, it's always going to be good because it's, it's super annoying if you're playing against a control deck and they land a Teferi, mm. but... It's not the same kind of threat. It's it's kind of like a must force if you're playing against Aloran. Mm. Because if they... I mean, I will defend it. If it comes down, I will defend it with everything I got. If I had a force of will that I didn't have to use in my counter war, I will just point that at the things that's trying to kill Teferi. Because that's my really, you know, cheese the game engine card. So I think yeah, Teferi is extremely good in this deck. And looking towards Gothenburg, having these 60 or 80 card options is just nice for you because you can just sort of bring two sizes of deck box and <laughs> decide on the day of. I mean, I probably might compete in both the Legacy tournaments. You can just go 16-1 and 18-1 and sort of evaluate what does best. Yeah, I might actually do that. So I'm, I'm thinking about it. But For science? It's, it's definitely a plan and the card like uh, the difference between the decks it's uh, it's not that hard if you're sitting at home or wherever you are in a hotel room etc and just swapping out the cards for a 60 card deck it's uh, it's a quite thick like easy fix so that's cool There was once a Magic the Gathering card called City in a Bottle. It was an artifact printed in Arabian Nights with a mana cost of 2 and with the following oracle text currently. Whenever one or more other non-token permanents with name originally printed in the Arabian Nights expansion are on the battlefield, their controllers sacrifice them. Players can't cast spells or play lands with a name originally printed in the Arabian Nights expansion. City in a Bottle was, as we once talked about on this here podcast, directly inspired by the Sandman comic issue number 50, Ramadan. The Sandman is about the character Dream, and dreaming is what we are about to do now. We will forego any card availability restrictions and choose any deck we would want to play and talk about why. Because next next week is going to be the last episode before Gothcon, so that discussion is likely to be a bit more hardcore and cutthroat maybe and metagamey so this week we will be anything but robin would you like to go first so when it comes to expensive cards my most expensive card that i own and one of my favorite cards in magic is tabernacle of the pendulum whale so if i had four tabernacle of the pendulum whale which i will not acquire (laughs) because that's just crazy i wonder why (laughs) if i had four I would play something very stacksy. That is maybe not having all the green tutors that goes well with playing just one. So maybe something like a white stack deck or a colorless stack deck that uh, really wants to prison the opponent out, making them tapping for their creatures and possibly destroying all the lands so that that is not possible. That is sort of the favorite thing to do in Magic, in my opinion. <laughs> so... That's an easy pick for me. I mean, 
few things are as satisfying as having tabernacle in play at the same time as you have a winter orb in play. And you're just, you don't have creatures in your deck. You're winning with Karn Lattice yeah. or something like that. It's extremely satisfying. That is sweet. It makes you think as well, like if, because on Magic Online, which is, to be fair, sort of the, the place that drives the legacy metagame forward and has been for quite some time really the tabernacle of pendle veil is a very cheap card but everyone still only plays the one copy do you think that the paper uh, insane cost of this card is prohibitive to innovation or is it playing one type tabernacle always just correct because i've been thinking can it really always be the right thing to do i think that uh, the eight mulch decks are are, are like improvising with playing more tabernacles i've seen one in the main one in the side and uh, it's possible that it's correct to play more in the side for the matchup where it's good because you're either on the a little bit grindier uh, zombie plan or you're on the fast merit lage plan and if you're on the merit lage plan then tabernacle is great and if you're on the zombie plan tabernacle is obviously bad because it taxes your zombies so uh, I think that kind of deck that is have not really been tried so much in paper, I suppose, because it's it it's it's quite new and most of being played online is experimenting with more tabernacles, and I guess that is sort of what we've seen in vintage as well. That the tabernacle can be like a, a two of or three of in the board for dredge matchups or like fast creature matchups. So I think that. It's possible for sure, and I think like I was gonna, I was gonna say like yeah, but I've seen uh, you know vintage decks with two or three copies in the in the sideboard. But for vintage players in general, when it comes to paper, I get the feeling that money wasn't the problem <laughs> <laughs> to begin with for a lot of them. But it's really interesting because what you said uh, for eight mulch, I think it's it's also interesting to look at. If you if you're in a position where you want to play multiple tabernacles and you're still going for like you get a a zombie draw, mm. you can pay for a lot of zombies. And your opponent, if there are if if they have a constriction, like if if the tabernacle is troublesome for them, are they gonna keep creatures in as blockers because then they're not really progressing their board and they're bound to lose anyway. So I think that's super cool. Even if it feels really shitty, if I if I may put it that way, to have Tabernacle alongside all of those zombie triggers. Like, yeah, you still have all of those zombies and probably mana to pay for six or seven of them. So that's, uh, I think it's uh, it, it works really well in that deck. Yeah, and I think one of the reasons that they want to play more is also that they're like, they don't necessarily play crop rotations. I've seen list with and I've seen list without. But it's it's a worse crop rotation deck than ordinary lands, obviously. But since it has all the mulches, they want to find it off the top of the deck. So they need to, to have more more copies in the deck to find it easier. All right. So, Christopher, you are a crazy person. If you did not have card availability as a restriction, <laughs> what would you play? Let me tell you, Victor and Robin and all the listeners, I would treat myself. I would play Bug Opposition with a full playset of Cradles, and I would just play Winter Orbs in that deck, I would play Oppositions, and I would just 
try and draw a million cards doing extremely mediocre to not super powerful things, killing the opponent slowly. Wow. It's not one of those hot knives that's just going through butter. No, no, no. This is just like that wooden butter butter knife just going in mediocre pace through the butter. (laughs) That's exactly how I want to slice my (laughs) opponents with the bug opposition. Like the heat can come, but I'm not here to kill the opponent quickly. Like there are day like there are draws where you have a natural order for hoof or stuff like that. But I mean you can play elf for that and do that more efficiently and more powerful but playing a a deck that can support force of will winter orb opposition and then just get to super cheat on the mana with uh, cradle it's uh, it's one of those dreams that i have and it's also one of my regrets never picking up the cradles because now they're super expensive so my treat yourself day to the magic spa would definitely be bug opposition with the cradles nice just a dream yeah i mean having that sort of fomo of not picking up certain reservist cards at some point in your magic the gathering legacy career can be painful my suggestion is sort of just try not to think about it <laughs> because there's nothing that you can do about it and every day that goes by there is even less you can do about it as these <laughs> prices of these cards just increase like your dream becomes even more impossible to realize so um don't beat yourself up about that christopher instead just float around in this beautiful uh, terrible <laughs> <laughs> terrible pool of butter that's not even melted it's 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 not really a pool of butter you're just laying in it laying it thick as a vegan I, these butter references kind of fly over my head though I have to say. <laughs> but there is vegan butter yeah but you know <laughs> <laughs> i'm not gonna you, you you know that so i'm not gonna lecture you and send you like links and Hey, look at this. This is oat milk. Uh, you know, but I mean, I what? lived in I lived in the U.S. at the time when I can't believe it's not butter was an actual product that people sort of were crazed for uh, at the department store. Well, it, when I was in America, my thing, my biggest pet peeve was me looking at the cheese, going, "This is not cheese," because in Europe we're super spoiled uh, with good cheese, and I wasn't feeling it, but. What I think we are feeling is some uh, is some suspense about your treat yourself deck. Would you like to indulge us? I would very much like to indulge you because I found a deck that just I've been thinking about it uh, nonstop since since this popped up, and I found this on Brian Koval's YouTube. Um, I mean, he's a content creator. He does a lot of donation lists he plays lists that people that are contributing to his um, his work he, he takes lists off of them and uh, perhaps tweaks them a bit and then plays them uh, in leagues uh, in magic online and the version i'm going to give you is the version that he then after playing the league tweaked to sort of suggest this is what you should play if you want to pick this deck up and this is a four chains anvil turak prison deck so i can really only explain it by going through the list so i'm going to do that it's four Anvil of Bogardon, two Baleful Mystery, four Chains of Mephistopheles, four Dark Ritual, one Grafdigger's Cage, three Hymn to Torak, four Life from the Loam, three Liliana of the Veil, four Mox Diamond, one Pithing Needle, three Smallpox, one The Rack, two Torak Dread Canter, 
two Assassin's Trophy, two Damping Sphere, one Fatal Push, two Liliana the Last Hope, and the land suite is one Ghost Quarter, one Nurturing Peatland, four Bayou, three Swamp, one Forest, two Urborg, four Ursa Saga, four Verdant Catacombs, and four Wastelands. So this is to start off a Pox deck, but it has the wonderful, fantastic Shane of Mephistopheles Anvil of Bogardan combo. And I'm going to read out these cards because they are not known by heart to every person who plays Legacy because these are, of course, Legacy cards that are rarely played, even though they are very pricey, <laughs> which <laughs> we'll get to in a moment. So the Oracle on Chains of Mephistopheles um, is Enchantment, one in the black. If a player would draw a card, except the first one they draw in each of their draw steps, that player discards a card instead. If the player discards a card this way, they draw a card. If the player doesn't discard a card this way, they mill a card. So that means that if you are hellbent, meaning you have no cards in hand, you basically can't draw cards uh, ever. Or you, you can draw cards, but then if you get into your hand, you just mill them instead, basically. And Anvil of Bogarden will do each uh, player's... It's Anvil of Bogarden is an artifact for two mana. Players have no maximum hand size, not going to be relevant in this deck. Uh, at the beginning of each player's draw step, that player draws an additional card, then discards a card. So what happens here is that when you draw this additional card, you instead first discard a card, and then you discard a card again. So you basically lock your opponent out of ever getting cards into their hands. And then you have just all these lovely pox interactions where I think Turak Dread Cantor from <clears throat> from Modern Horizons 2 is the all-star here. And Turak was when, when the card was released, so the people were like, ooh, this would perhaps be fun, but no one has found a home for it. Until now. <laughs> so I'm just going to take that one last minute. Turek is one in a black for a legendary creature human cleric. Has a kicker of two black. It's a 2-1. Protection from white. Uh, so hello legacy <laughs> and whenever an opponent discards a card put a plus one plus one counter on Torak Dread Counter and when Torak enters the battlefield if it was kicked target opponent discards two cards at random so you can kick this 2-1 and get a human on top of him and whenever you someone discards cards an opponent he, he grows and of course your opponent if you get this lock in they're going to discard cards left right and center and then you have Ursa Saga to make big things and to if sort of you are hellbending your opponent you can just fetch the one rack in the deck and, and win through that i love that yes and all the lilianas because you have a dark ritual going you can just do that uh, but the reason of course this deck is is nigh unplayable in paper is that it comes with a price tag of roughly twelve thousand six hundred us dollars and out of that price 90 percent is made up of four chains of mephistopheles four mox diamonds and four bayous where the chains clock in at 6.800 dollars the four mox diamonds is two and a half thousand dollars and the bayous are just over two thousand dollars 90 percent of the deck are these three play sets of cards and of course, you know, you'll find people who own four mox diamonds. You can perhaps borrow of them if you have some collateral to put in because that's borrowing, you know, spontaneously $2,500 worth of cardboard. Perhaps not the dream. I have a couple of bayous. But then finding someone who has four chains to lend me, I think I'm going to be hard-pressed to do that. Uh, but I watched this uh, as as Brian Cobalt play this in, in, in the league and the deck is just fantastic. Yeah, uh, in, in what it does it just mm, the scoops 
that he gets in the <laughs> matches that he wins. You can just feel the opponent just like, what the fuck is going on? I'm really getting anvil locked in 2022. But yeah, that's... Uh, I mean, I think the Torak creature, it's one of those cards that uh, when, when it was first spoiled, I was like, uh, it's pretty bad. And I think that's still true. But uh, it has found a really solid home which is modern, actually. I've seen this uh, card being played a lot there. But just like, uh, you know, in Legacy, black cards have to carry a lot of weight to be worth playing. And yeah. That's also yeah. why cards like Duffy Voidwalker hasn't really seen all too much play. And I think yeah. this is also one of the reasons why why we might not see Torak as much. Mm. what's the bare minimum for a black creature it's like plague engineer or baleful strix like a splash black but to be mono black and have a a very you know condensed cost of black uh, in both doffy and this it's pretty hard on the mana uh, kind of requires you to to run urborgs and not many decks can support that. But this this is one of the fine examples of a deck where the plan comes together. Yeah, I mean, it's basically mono black. It has these assassin's trophies, but that's about it. Yeah, is that only in the sideboard? Because I think you you, you mentioned that uh, when you went through the, the deck list. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the assassin's trophies, damping spheres, fiddle push, the last hopes... Uh, two page engineers to run afoul two surgicals and two tux deluge that's the sideboard Oof, correct run afoul is also a nice pickup for all of those pesky merktides yeah so it's it's main deck it's basically mono black yeah i really like the interaction with ursa saga in a pox deck to begin with and then also running the like uh, old school one mana artifacts that punish your opponent for having too few or too many cards. That's a sweet interaction in my book. I would I would be wanting to play Black Wise, for instance, in Legacy for like since I started playing Legacy. And now Ursa Saga can find that copy. Like it doesn't have to like dilute your deck completely and you have to play like four copies that aren't doing anything. At one point I will sleeve up a deck that plays a Black Wise that is fetchable with uh, Ursa Saga. And then, I don't know, some sort of mana denial that will fill up your opponent's hand. Yeah, I'm feeling this deck could, instead of calling it Four Chains Anvil Turek Prison, you could call it uh, Very Rich Man's 8-Rack. Yep. Oh, man. <laughs> no cheap cards rack instead of no bad cards delver. Like that. So no, but like ironically, again, like most of the deck is really affordable, sort of in legacy terms. It's just these these three play sets that are 90% of the cost. But then, of course, after 90%, you still need about $1,800 to finish out the rest of the deck. <laughs> yeah, like, could you, with, with the, because the price tag was just insane, could, you could almost build two land sticks with this cost right because maybe not maybe that's like a bit stretched but the the chains are so incredibly expensive i i got i was really shocked when you said the price uh, because that's that's more than two play sets of max diamonds right yeah yeah yeah, for yeah sure. it's, it's, it, that's insane it is insane and um again like other podcasts and 
people who write things, etc., etc., have discussed why certain reserve list cards seems to just be inexplainably pricey. And of course, Chains from Mephistopheles is such a legendary card. Like when I started playing Magic in 1995-6, Chains from Mephistopheles was like an iconic card already at the yeah. time. As was, you know, you some gin uh, and and a couple of other of these, and of course the Power Nine, etc. But it was a really pricey card already at that time. Although already at that time, it wasn't played that much in the formats where it was sort of uh, tournament legal. And I mean, to this day, it's not played that much. I mean, today, of course, you can argue that Chains of Mephistopheles is a card you can play in EDH, and I'm sure anyone who can afford to have one in their whatever black commander deck would like to put a chains in there because it's just so much fun in probably in commander but still though it's just it's weird how this card is just sort of extremely famously sought after even though it's not particularly good now i was just gonna say that i think all of those like real ancient card that is sort of altering how the game is played uh, have always been very popular and sought after and and like retain this legendary state. I'm thinking about Nether Void and Abyss as well that are sort of in the same category category for me. Those world enchantment effects, yeah, they're cool. Funny though, Chains of Mephistopheles is not legendary nor a world enchantment which you would totally think it is. It's just a banger and it has a banger picture. Yeah, that picture is Like great. the art. It's it, like, is it is it like masterfully done? I don't know. Do I love yeah. it? Yeah, sure. It's super <laughs> yeah. iconic. But one thing that I just wanted to uh, mention with this deck list that I really think is genius is uh, one of the cards that we haven't seen all that much since its release, which is Baleful Mastery from Strixhaven. Baleful Mastery is free and a black, but you can pay it for just one and a black at the drawback that your opponent gets to draw a card. Then it exiles target creature or planeswalker. But if you have chains in play, it's free game. <laughs> like, you can Baleful Mastery and they do get to draw a card, but a lot of times that's not going to be a card. Maybe they get to, you know, do some really weird, uh, you know, loot, loot one. Uh, sort of thing but i think it's a like inclusion and this is really cool because it's one of the cards where i think a lot of people pseudo freaked out when it was spoiled and i was like yeah but it's realistically four mana but here there's like i i think it's really good that card is going into my black vice deck for sure (laughs) (laughs) of course you can draw a card And that is all we have for this week. We hope you've enjoyed this episode as much as we have enjoyed recording it, as we always do. If you like the show, tell a friend you think should listen. And if you want to say hi to us or post your dream deck, you can join our Discord server. You can find the link in the episode description. The link will expire after a week, uh, after this episode goes up, because Discord just keeps sort of being weird that way. But we publish weekly, so just check out the latest episode and you'll find the correct link to enter Discord. In addition to Discord, you can hit us up on Twitter at Legacy, Stockholm Legacy. We are also present personally on some social media. Robin? Where can our listeners find you? Uh, you can find me on the Discord server. You can find me there as well. And uh, also uh, on Twitter 
at monolithmtg. And I'm also on Twitter under Disco Drogo and in the Discord server. And that is the end of the 43rd episode of Stockholm Legacy Report. Thank you, Robinson Seal and Christoph Wikström. Warm thank you to you for listening. The Great Thrones has written their music. You can check their work on Spotify. And until next time, the Sandman comic spin-off Lucifer is fucking amazing. Netflix series is fine, but just something very different. And read a comic. Please do. I really, really, really compel you. Check out the Sandman spin-off Lucifer.